Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast, brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. Good morning. This is Betty Lynn Fisher. I'm the consumer columnist and medical reporter with the Akron Beacon Journal. And this morning for my Healthy Actions column, I have Dr. Eileen Wong, who is medical director of University Hospital's Sleep Lab in Streetsboro, joining me. And we're here today to talk about sleep disorders. Thank you, Dr. Wong, for joining me today. Thank you to Betty for inviting me to talk today. Of course, of course. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and sleep medicine services? So I started working here as a sleep doctor in, um, I have clinics actually in Streetsboro and also in Giaga. I started working in 2020, um, but I had finished my sleep medicine fellowship in University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center back in um, 2019. Um, And uh, so the thing is with the sleep medicine services, basically we we have sleep um, providers all across the UH system who are like seeing patients who have problems with sleep, whether it's problems falling asleep, staying asleep, snoring, stopping breathing while sleeping, or they have problems like they keep moving their legs at night or any abnormal behaviors during sleep, or they're just excessively sleepy in daytime. So these kinds of sleep disorders are usually seen in the sleep clinic. And then we evaluate the patients. And if we think that patients needs further testing, we can order like either a home sleep test or an in-lab sleep study. And in university hospitals, there's actually 10 sleep labs across the system. Um, There's one in Streetsboro, Giaga, Geneva, Parma, um, Samaritan, Avon, Elyria, Lake, and even on Beachwood and also Cleveland main campus. So that's all 10. So will you tell me, you know, what would some reasons, you mentioned just a little bit of them, but, you know, talk to me a little bit about the importance of sleep and restful sleep. And when would, you know, what's the difference between like this morning when I woke up, you know, I never very, I had, you know, a bad dream, right? So I don't feel like I had a restful sleep, but, you know, tell, talk to me about when, you know, when would somebody, uh, you know, want to seek out um, the help of your, you and your colleagues? So usually if you have some um, abnormal behaviors in sleep, like some people, they kind of like have. Um, not only abnormal behaviors, but like breathing problems. The most common we see in the sleep clinic is actually breathing problems during sleep. Like um, the husband is snoring so loud and like snoring like a dragon and the wife cannot sleep. So the wife's sleep is affected. So yeah, so like if you have have like snoring or somebody saw you stop breathing, then you have to see a sleep specialist or if you're gasping for air or having choking sensation during sleep or drowsy driving in the morning or people who have excessively sleepy in the daytime or uh, sometimes some patients have abnormal sensation on the legs before sleeping. That's usually uh, related to restless leg syndrome. Or some patients, they act out their dreams during sleep. And it's like uh, when you act out your dreams during sleep or you're having like sleepwalking behaviors or 
some people call it sleep terrors when they're acting out dreams. So those things, we also see them in the sleep clinic. Those things are, are need to be seen by a sleep specialist. Some patients, they... They go see a sleep specialist too if they can. They have problems falling asleep or staying asleep, or they're having fatigue, decreased mood or irrit irritability, general um, malay headache, you know, or even cognitive impairment. Usually in adults, the symptoms of like um, daytime dysfunction because of lack of restful sleep is usually fatigue in the daytime or kind of irritable in the daytime, or some some patients, they just get morning headache or headache, headache here and there, or problems with memory. So that's in, in adults. In kids, usually the daytime dysfunction, if they didn't have a restful sleep, is poor school performance, impaired attention, or sometimes aggression and hyperactivity. So it's a different symptoms in kids in the daytime, and for the adults, it's different. And do you see both children and adults at the sleep lab? I only see adults though. Okay. Okay. So if, if you're if you're having if your child's having some sleep issues, probably talk to your pediatrician first. Um, there's actually a pediatric sleep also within our UH system. It's Dr. Sally Ibrahim and Dr. Moshi Prero. So they see kids with sleep disorders. Okay. Okay. And do people need a referral or can they come? Do they need a referral from a primary care physician first? Um it depends on the insurance. I think some insurance need a referral, but some insurance don't. So you can also come like as a self-referral. Okay. Okay. Um, let's go back a little bit to talk about the importance of sleep. So like, you know, you always hear you need eight hours of sleep. You know, how important is is that? And how important is um, is it like the, the being, being able to get into the called the deep REM sleep? So the thing, Betty, is um, it really depends on your age. If you're 18 and above, 7 to 9 hours is actually good. When you reach 65, 7 to 8 hours is recommended. However, if you sleep 6 hours, it's still, it's still acceptable. If it's less than 6 hours, that's probably, that's probably kind of like too little. Now, however, there's also a segment of population whom we call short sleeper. So these people who are short sleeper, they usually sleep less than six hours and then they, they already feel good. They don't have issues like fatigue in the daytime, problems with memory, mood concentration, or drowsy driving or daytime sleepiness. So in those cases, who in those patients who are actually sleeping less than six hours, but they, they don't have issues in the daytime, they're really fine with it, then we really don't do anything about them. So for, but the, the, usually these, these patients who are short sleeper are re really kind of like rare. They're not a lot of them. For the most part, people usually need like seven to nine hours. Based on research, there's already like uh, a research that showed actually the seven, seven hours is actually better. Now in terms of the dream, the dreams, uh, I mean the sleep stages, so um, we have we usually divide the dream, the I uh, sorry no, not the dream the, the sleep into two kinds. There's the non that the, there's the non REM. It stands for non rapid eye movement sleep. And then there's also the sleep wherein you are dreaming. That's what we call REM sleep or rapid eye movement. So the non REM is usually good for physical health. The REM is usually called good for mental health. So the reason why we say that is because during REM sleep, we learn. We, that's the time where our brain is trying to learn 
like kind of like recall what we learned in the morning, in the daytime. And then it's kind of try to re relearn how to do it. And then um, in terms of like, um, uh, the, what's this? The the memory, memory consolidation, it's usually the, it happens during the stage two and stage three of non-REM sleep. Especially in stage three, that's the time where the memory uh, consolidation and, and are stored. So the, the deep sleep that we're talking about or the restorative sleep is not really in REM all the time. It's usually, we call the deep sleep actually the stage three, the stage three of non-REM. Because the non-REM is divided into stage one, two, and three. And then there's the REM. So during stage three, that's the time, that's the, what we call deep sleep or the restorative sleep. So in kids, in kids, actually, the deep sleep, the entry the sleep is very important, too, because that's the time the growth hormone is produced, you know, for for so that they can grow taller and those things. Um, immunity. So our immunity is enhanced also during deep sleep, which is the stage N3 sleep. So the reason why we, we need like a, a good restful sleep is because there's sleep has a lot of um, uh, benefit for us. Okay, it's it's the time where our memories are consolidated and stored. It's the time where muscles kind of repair and recover. You know, because because if you don't if you don't sleep well, the following day you feel like you feel like you cannot your 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 judgment and concentration is impaired. You know, reaction time is slowed and. There, there's a lot of issues when you're not um, when you're not getting adequate sleep. There's short-term and long-term effects, basically. Just to make sure I understand, you said there's three stages of non-REM and REM. Are those three stages one, two, three, and then you go into REM, or the is REM in the middle? Yeah, yeah. So it so basically, what happens like you start with the normally. This is in a normal patient, though. So you start with the non-REM stage one, two, three, and then you go to REM, and then and then sometimes if from REM you go to N two stage two, and then and then go back to to three, and then one, and then go to REM. It really depends on the person. So it's like an alternating cycles. Usually, uh, usually each cycle has uh, can last from anywhere from ninety to one hundred minutes. So when we say each cycle, each cycle is composed of non-REM and REM. Okay, okay. So, you know, we've heard a lot about how um, white light and watching your, you know, the TV and your phones and, and tablets and laptops can really affect your your sleep. And, you know, I've seen things that say, that suggest trying to um, turn off the TV or turn off your, you know, don't look at your phone right before you're going to sleep. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, does that, does that affect um, people's sleep and, and, you know, what are some healthy tips that people can follow? So yes, um, the laptop, cell phone, iPad, they actually emit blue light and this blue light is kind of harmful. I mean, not uh, that, when I say harmful in the sleep perspective, it means like what happens is the blue light when when we, when our brain sees blue light, it thinks that we need to be awake. Okay, so so if you're exposed to like your if you're watching TV for a long time, cell phone while in bed, instead of going to sleep, making you fall asleep, it actually tells your brain to be more awake. So you end up like having problems falling asleep more. So. We usually tell patients like 
we, part of the good sleep habits that we tell is like turn off uh, turn off any like um, gadgets that emit blue light like cell phone, iPad or tablet, TV, like anywhere one to two hours before you go to sleep. And then we tell the patients like don't go to sleep unless you're sleepy. And if you're not, if you're already in bed and you're not falling asleep in 15 minutes, we tell them to get out of bed. You can go to like a chair inside your bedroom or to another room and do something boring. Like so some, some of my, grab your phone. <laughs> yeah, no, not get up and go to your phone. Because when you get up and go to your phone, you're actually exposing right. yourself to blue light again. And so it's going to be hard to fall back asleep or fall asleep. So we tell them to like do something boring and make sure it's under dim light, like yellow light. Because if you turn off your white light in the room or or you start exposing yourself to uh, gadgets that emit blue light, then you start um, telling your brain that you're, you need to be more awake. So it needs to be like in a dim room or, and then you do something boring, like flipping through magazines or like some of my patients, they do, they color, they do coloring until they feel sleepy. When they're sleepy, that's the time they go back to bed. Okay. And then avoid the napping in daytime because when you nap, you're actually um, stealing uh, the sleep pressure because as long as you're awake during the daytime, you're building up sleep pressure. Okay. And then when the sleep pressure peaks, that's the time you feel very sleepy. Now, if you sleep in the daytime, then your sleep pressure goes down. Now it, it's going to be harder for you to fall asleep at night. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about caffeine? Caffeine, uh, caffeine is the same thing. Um, what happens with the caffeine, it actually blocks the adenosine receptor in the body. And this adenosine is the one that contributes to the sleep pressure. So, so um, basically, when we sleep, uh, all our bodies, uh, body cells actually produce adenosine as part of metabolism. And this adenosine is the one that builds up in the body, and it's actually the one that is contributing for the sleep pressure. So if you sleep, the, the, the adenosine gets consumed. So, so the caffeine, on the other hand, it blocks the adenosine, it blocks the adenosine receptor. So what happens, your adenosine cannot get, uh, what's this, cannot, um, cannot build up. Mm -hmm. Is there a tip of like how many hours before sleep you should perhaps cut off the caffeine? So that's a good question because different uh, patients has different, um, uh, what's this, rate of metabolism. Like, um, for example, just my example, okay, when I was younger, probably if I drink caffeine at 6 p.m., I can still fall asleep at 9 p.m. But for some reason, as I get older, I have to cut down my caffeine by 12 noon. <laughs> Otherwise, I can't fall asleep too at night. So it, it really depends on the metabolism. We noted that... Um, um, as we get older, it seems like the metabolism of caffeine is slower. So that's why we have to cut off the caffeine earlier. We usually advise patients to cut off, to stop drinking any caffeine like past 12 noon. Okay. What about water too? You know, um, some people, you know, they, if they drink too much water, then they end up waking up and having to go to the bathroom, which then, of course, mm -hmm. disturbs their sleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for the water, yeah, we see that a lot too in, in the clinic. So um, what I tell the patients is like limit fluid intake to like eight ounces at dinner time and um, 
after that, do not drink any more water. If you have like pills that you need to take at bedtime, um, make sure to drink it with only sips of water, just enough to swallow the pills. And then try to void at bedtime. So that way, even though you don't feel like voiding, try to void at bedtime. So that way, when you go to sleep, you don't wake up a lot to go to the bathroom. On the other hand, there are also some other causes of like waking up a lot to go to the bathroom. Like if you have a big prostate or you're taking some medications like water pill, that can also make you wake up a lot in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Or even the sleep apnea, that can the sleep apnea, which is a sleep disorder where people snore, they stop breathing while sleeping, wake up gasping in the middle of the night. So yeah, these patients with sleep apnea, they can also wake up a lot in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Okay. You had mentioned earlier that a lot of times the patients come see you because they have kind of the snoring or the, the, mm -hmm. the um, uh, disturbance. Um, you know, what are some other um, potential reasons that somebody might come see you? And then can you talk to me a little bit about what happens in a sleep study? So other instances that they can see me is like if they're excessively sleepy in the daytime, like, um, it that and then um there because uh, some patients we have what we call nar a, a different kind of sleep disorder called narcolepsy, which is not very common actually. But these patients are very very sleepy. Okay, they sleep while they're standing. They sleep while they're eating. Like they 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 sleep when they're doing active things. And as soon as they fall asleep, they go into the dreaming stage. Because normally it takes us one hour or one hour and a half to go to dreaming stage once we fall asleep. But these patients with narcolepsy, usually within fifteen minutes of sleeping, they go into dreaming stage. So that's that's kind of. Um, uh, pretty specific for people with narcolepsy. So yeah, so people with narcolepsy, I also see them in, in clinic. And then um, people who have restless leg syndrome, meaning, meaning um, restless leg syndrome, it usually need, patients should usually say yes to four criteria. First, there need to be urge to move legs. Second, it usually happens at night or worse at night because it can also happen in daytime, but it's usually worse at night. Third, it usually happens with inactivity, meaning when they're sitting in a chair or when they're lying in bed, the urge to move legs starts to happen. And fourth, um, patient, uh, these re patients with restless leg syndrome, usually when they have this sensation of urge to move legs, it goes away when they walk. So yeah, so an that's another thing that I see in clinic too, the patients with restless leg syndrome. Um, patients who are having like um, sleep eating behavior, they wake up and then they look for something to eat and then they're eating something that, and then the following day they don't remember. So patients with sleep eating behavior, I also see that in clinic or acting out dreams, like they're punching, they're flailing their arms in the air while sleeping, and then they fall from bed, they jump from bed while they're sleeping. And sometimes they may hit, uh, hurt themselves or hurt their partner while they're sleeping. So that's what we call REM sleep behavior disorder. Basically it's acting out dreams. That one I also see in, in clinic. Um, what else? Um, 
patients also who have problems like um, circadian rhythm problems, basically body clock issues. Like these are the people who are what we call, oh, oh you have a, a night owl personality or you're a lark personality or some of my, I have a patient who's a blind patient can also have problems with body clock issue too, or, um, or people who are elderly or people who have um, aid, uh, autism, they have problems with their sleep because what happens, they like, they sleep a lot in the day and then at night they cannot fall asleep. And we call it like um, irregular sleep wake, uh, this sleep wake face disorder. So yeah, so and shift work disorder too. People who work night shift and they have problems falling asleep, staying asleep, or they're sleepy when you're they're not supposed to be sleepy. Yeah, those those things I usually see in the clinic. Now, what uh which ones do do we need to do a sleep study? So if you're we're thinking patients have sleep apnea or we're thinking that patients have narcolepsy, that's the time we do a sleep study. But then there's two kinds of sleep study. There's a home sleep apnea testing. That's basically an in-home sleep study. And then there's an in-lab sleep study. So sometimes it really depends on the insurance because some insurance, they only cover home sleep apnea tests first before they cover the in-lab. While some insurance, they only cover in-lab sleep study. They won't cover the home sleep study. So the difference between in-lab and in-home sleep study, um, the in-home sleep study is we usually ask the patient um, to come to the sleep lab and then we do an in-person demonstration on how to hook it up. There's also an option for the in-home sleep study test kit to be mailed to the house. There's also an option for that. And the other option is pick it up in the sleep lab. So, um, the, like I said, it depends on the insurance. Some insurance cover only home before they cover the in-lab. Well, some, they only cover the in-lab sleep study. The difference in ordering them is if you have like heart disease, like heart failure, atrial fibrillation, or stroke, or COPD, or taking narcotics, we usually prefer in-lab sleep study because between the two, in-lab is actually a much better test because we gather more data out of it. What happens is when you're going for an in-lab sleep study, there's two kinds of airflow sensors that we, we put to the patient. And then there's also like two belts, one in the chest, one in the belly to check for breathing effort. There's also something that we put on the finger to check for the heart rate and to check for um, uh oxygen saturation. And then there's also on the chest lead, there's also like an EKG lead there uh, to check for heart rhythm. And then we also put some EMG leads on the legs to check for leg movements. And um, last but not the least, we put some um, kind of like wires on the scalp, on the chin um, to check for, and, and near the eyes to check for sleep staging that's actually for sleep staging those parts so basically when you're in the sleep lab 
personally, I think it's really uncomfortable because you there's going to be a lot of wars. But in the end, you get actually more data out of it. Now, the in-home in sleep study, it's kind of limited because first, you don't have EKG rhythm strip in the in-home sleep study. You only have something on the finger to check for oxygen saturation and to check for heart rate. And then you don't have the sleep staging in the in-home sleep study because you don't have wires placed on your scalp. So we cannot do a correct staging of your sleep. So it's just like an estimate whether you're sleeping or not sleeping. We, we um, basically we cannot tell if it's actually if you're actually sleeping if you're in an in-home sleep study. But there's also what we call like airflow sensors in an in-home sleep study, and also some belts on the chest and abdomen. That's basically to check for breathing effort, like in especially in patients with sleep apnea. Might somebody start with a at-home study if? Perhaps their insurance is, is saying that. And if you see enough uh, data that they need and, you know, would you bring them in, you know, or try to get um, the approval for a uh, in-lab study then? Yes. Um, yes, that's right. So, so, so here's the thing. When we have the, when we, uh, we ordered the in-lab, uh, the in-home sleep study and it comes back positive for sleep apnea, there's actually two options there. Either we start the patient with treatment right away, like an auto, like a CPAP machine or auto CPAP machine, or we can, uh, we can have the patient go to the sleep lab and do an in-lab sleep study, this time with a CPAP machine. It really depends on how bad the sleep apnea was on the in-home in sleep study. Because sometimes the in-home sleep study will show, oh, the oxygen is dropping too low for too many minutes, you know, for for a lot of minutes, for, for hours or what. Then usually in those cases, we ask the patients to do an in-lab sleep study and try um, um, the CPAP machine while in the sleep lab. And then check if the CPAP machine is not tolerated, maybe try the BiPAP on the same night, or maybe even add oxygen if the oxygen saturation is still dropping despite on CPAP. So that's why some, it really depends on the in-home sleep study. If the in-home sleep study is actually showing mild sleep apnea, then we can also start treatment. Like we can go for auto CPAP or oral appliance. That's again, depending on the insurance. Because some insurance, they don't cover oral appliance. Some insurance wants you to start CPAP first before you can go oral appliance. Well, some insurance, they're fine with starting oral appliance. Did you say oral appliance? What is that? So basically, it looks like an Invisalign. You wear it. it uh, we have the patient wear it in the uh, upper and lower jaw at bedtime, and then they remove it at, at night. So but what it does is it actually moves the lower jaw forward together with your tongue so that your tongue won't fall backwards. Because what happens in sleep apnea, your muscles are like super relaxed. And then the tongue, your, your throat muscles, those are actually muscles. So even the tongue. So when they relax during sleep, they actually fall back. Like the tongue fall back, then your, your upper airway, your throat muscles, they kind of like do intermittent narrowing. So you end up with um, stopping breathing events or airflow limitation. Okay. Um, you did already start to talk about some of the treatments, CPAP machine, oral um, appliances. What other treatments are there for some of the other disorders that you, you mentioned? Um, so there's the CPAP machine. The, uh, in terms of the machine, there's actually different kinds. We start usually with CPAP. 
And then if patient doesn't tolerate or patient failed the CPAP, like patients still stop breathing a lot despite on CPAP, we move on to BiPAP. And sometimes if patient has a different kind of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea, patient might end up having to use like an ASV machine. So yeah, in terms of the machine, there's different kinds to choose from. But we usually start with the CPAP because that's the first line. Then there's also the oral appliance, like I told earlier. We usually The oral appliance, we usually refer it, refer the patient to a dentist who specializes in sleep because the they they have this diff, they usually will try to get a mold imprint of the of the upper and lower teeth of the patient and have it um, customized to a to a to an equipment provider and then they kind of like ask the patient to follow up how many weeks later and every week or something like that because they need to do some adjustments so that's with the oral appliance. And then after usually six months of adjusting everything, wearing the oral appliance, the dental sleep provider might ask the patient to do a home sleep study wearing the oral appliance to see if it actually improves the sleep apnea. Now, there's also what we call Inspire. That's kind of fairly new. So it's basically a battery implanted under your skin, and then it comes with a remote control. So um, we, 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 the remote control, we, the patient places it on the chest where the, the uh, Inspire is implanted it, and then turns it on at bedtime. And then how the, the way it works it at night is it moves the tongue forward every time the patient is breathing while he's sleeping. So that's how it works. So it's, it's like a battery implanted under the skin. Looks like it, it kind of looks like a pacemaker. Um, and kind of works like a pacemaker, but it's not for the heart. It's for the tongue because it moves the tongue forward. Mm. And are there any cases where uh, somebody might be getting some medications as well? Or is it mostly, sounds like mostly equipment? For sleep apnea, it's still uh, on research whether there are some medications can help with sleep apnea. But so far, there uh, there's not like, a, um, a, what's this? There's no medication that is... Um, highly effective or highly recommended right now because they're, they're they're still working on research on that on that to look for medication to help with sleep apnea and can you talk a little bit about over-the-counter medications for sleeping as well as um, some natural you know pe some people talk about melatonin um, you know can can people find those helpful at all so the melatonin um, our body also produces melatonin and the way to trigger our body to produce melatonin is actually to turn off the lights. No lights at all. Darkness stimulates the body to produce melatonin. And then light actually um, inhibits the body to produce melatonin. So if there's the, if there's no light, that's why we tell patients, you know, turn off all your electronics, turn off the light, make sure the room is also dark when you're sleeping, because if there's light, then the more that you cannot fall asleep. Um, melatonin is, you, what the melatonin usually does in the body is actually calm the body, calm the brain, calm the body, so that it prepares the body to fall asleep. It doesn't make you really fall asleep right away. It's not, it. so it, the thing is, my point is, um, some patients, they don't feel like, melatonin is effective while, while other patients they feel it's effective but basically the melatonin is not really a sleeping pill it's 
it actually just helps the body to prepare to fall asleep because it calms the whole body and calms the brain. That's basically what melatonin does. How oh now melatonin is actually a good medicine. We we use that for um for like uh, if you have like owl personality, meaning like you're the type of person that you sleep past 12 midnight and then um, and then you, you have to wake up like around 6 a.m. for school or for work. And so you're sleepy, sleepy in the daytime. So sometimes we use melatonin to move the body clock. So bottom line, if it's for body clock issues, melatonin is a good um, is a good um good medication that we we use also for people who have a REM sleep behavior disorder we treat patients with melatonin on, in high doses as well and then what about sleeping over the counter sleeping pills so the over the counter sleeping pills like benadryl um uh, we usually don't want patients to be taking a lot of these over-the-counter medications that usually have Benadryl or diphenhydramine because the thing is these medications can actually cause you to have restless leg syndrome. And, and besides, we want the patients to sleep naturally. You know, don't rely on medications to take med to, to fall asleep. Great. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Wong. Thank you so much for taking the time today and educating us about sleep disorders. We really appreciate it. Thank you.